Hey guys, welcome back. I'm going to quickly recap week two of testimony, the Derek Chauvin trial. This was a very jaw-dropping week for me with listening to what was presented and who presented it. I'm not going to go into every witness, of course. I will stick to the few that I felt stood out to me and something that I was bothered by. And that's going to be that because I felt last week's podcast was just a little too long. It was a lot. So I'm not going to nearly talk as long. So I'll just go right into it. Start with Katie Blackwell. Sergeant Katie Blackwell was called to the stand and she is one of the officers that assist with training the police on use of force. Her testimony was very short to the point. It wasn't a lot of direct questions. It wasn't a lot of cross. I think both sides got their points across with her. She discussed neck restraints, chokeholds, conscious chokeholds, unconscious chokeholds, and it really made me uneasy. I'm just thinking back to people that have encounters with police and and they and it just goes terribly wrong, like in the case of George Floyd. All the stuff that they're allowed to do to us was just a little too much for me to to handle. But I wanted to listen to it so I could get an idea of what Derek Chauvin was and was not allowed to do when he was out in the field dealing with suspects. And the beginning of this week, we saw a lot of police, high-ranking officials up there, sergeants, the chief, lieutenants, starting to see that really tight, close-knit wall of blue start to slowly chip away. Because even with the chief of police coming up there, this is stuff that we normally don't see. Officers are not really brought into court and tried for murder. And you really definitely don't see when they are all of these police officers that used to work with them testifying against one of their own. So it was a very riveting week. And I can't imagine how Derek Chauvin's feeling watching these people that he used to report to and laugh with, joke with, have friendly relationship with now on the stand testifying against him. You really can't tell what he's, you know, thinking because he's in a mask, obviously because of COVID, but he's doing a lot of note taking and every now and then he'll pop his head up. He's really involved with the sidebars. So that's why I think he's testifying. I'll, I'll get into that later. I got like 33 DMs. I counted them today because I had a little time asking me, did I still think he was testifying? And I still say yes, but I'll talk about that towards the end. But anyway, back to this woman, Sergeant Katie Blackwell, she was discussing neck restraints and chokeholds. And there came a time where the prosecution showed her um, some video clips of the event where George Floyd was killed and um, a picture. And this is her response. She had a picture of Derek Chauvin kneeling 
on George Floyd's necks, where he's looking right at one of the bystanders recording, where he has that stoic, I'm tough guy look. And this is what she said. I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. So she got her point across. It's not what they train. She's never seen a police officer being shown to kneel on someone's neck. She did say that police officers can restrain someone by the neck, but you'll remember back to Lieutenant Zimmerman who testified last week, who said that neck restraints are those top tier deadly restraints. So you want to be very careful. And clearly Derek Chauvin was not careful because we know what happened to George Floyd. So she was one that stood out to me. Then you had uh, Lieutenant Johnny Marcel come on. He also, he seemed a little bit more hands-on with the police training. He went more in depth with the neck restraints and the chokeholds and what the officers are told they should do in those situations, but they're to be very limited when they're deciding to restrain someone in that manner because certain body parts are very sensitive. You know, your chest area, your neck, your brain, the body in general is sensitive, but certain areas are more prone to injury. So the state was trying to show the jury that, okay, they may have this training and this is what they're able to do. But what Derek Chauvin did was not what was trained. And obviously he did it in a very long, torturous manner to George Floyd. So those two people stood out to me. And of course, the chief of police took the stand on Tuesday. He was one of the people that I could not wait to hear from this week outside of the medical examiner. So Chief Madaria Arenando took the stand on Tuesday and he had a very long day of testimony on the stand. It started with, of course, him going into his background why he became a police officer. And he really started chipping away at what he expects out of his officers. He went into the values that the police officer are to abide by. And one thing that stood out to me the most is what he said. When a suspect is in custody of police, no matter what they did, the police have an obligation to maintain their safety at all times because they have rights. So if you're being arrested for forgery or you're being arrested for rape, murder, you are still to treat the person with respect and dignity because again, like he said, they still have rights. And he felt that George Floyd's rights were taken away from him. He was up there a while for about three hours and I felt his testimony was very strong, was very emotional, even though he wasn't really showing a lot of emotion, but he has a passion for his job. You can tell he really likes what he does and he expects his officers to maintain a certain level of professionalism. 
a certain level of respect towards each other and the people in the community. He made a point saying a lot of times the police officers are the first government officials people get acquainted with. And so he wants the officers to have a trusting relationship with those people, you know, because you're in their community, you're servicing them, not the other way around. So you treat them how you want to be treated. And I, you know, it, it took a while to get to the events of 525 where George Floyd was um, murdered, but he laid down the foundation that I thought was great. And he spoke to the jurors directly. At times he would turn his body and speak directly to them. And he talked about the night that he got the phone call around 9.30 at night. It seems a lot of the higher ups were getting phone calls at that time. And whenever there's a critical incident of that nature, it seems like all of the people that are the ones that people don't necessarily see do have to act. So he came and he was briefed on the matter. And one thing that did st stood out to me was he didn't know that there was a bystander video until midnight going into the next day. He got a phone call at midnight and the person said, did you see your officer choking and killing that man? So his spidey senses went up. And he did admit when he initially looked at the video that he was made aware of, he couldn't really tell exactly what was going on. So I don't think he or the other people around him really knew what to do. They were still getting information. But when he did get this phone call from this community leader at midnight, he then saw the video and then felt like, wow, this is just not what was supposed to happen. And he, he was very touched, not touched, that's not a good word. He was moved by it. He just couldn't believe it. And as we know, Derek Chauvin and the other three officers were fired less than 24 hours after the chief viewed that video. So that was very damning testimony because this is the man that fired you. This is the man. This is your this is your boss boss. Like this is, you know, whatever happens or it's going to happen. This is the guy who has, you know the final say. So seeing a chief of police come in and testify against one of his former officers was very powerful. And he he's a man of color. So it spoke volumes to me seeing that. And he had a very interesting exchange with Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson. And I'll play a little clip of that. He was discussing when he viewed the video and how he felt and why he rendered the decision to fire Derek Chauvin and the other three officers. So I'll play what he said. Training to indefinitely place um, your knee on a 
prone, handcuffed individual for an indefinite period of time. For, so the issue that you take with it is the length of time? Councilor, the, there's a couple of issues, and, and one of those, again, is, uh, as you noted, uh, receiving the information. Um, is the person a threat to the officers or others? What is the severity of the crime? Uh, are you reevaluating and assessing the person's medical condition? So all of that critical thinking, um, that's, so that's really key for me in terms of why I vehemently disagree that that was the appropriate use of force for that situation. Okay. Okay, so he had a problem with the timing of how long Derek Chauvin was on. George Floyd's neck. He had a problem with the overall mannerism that he displayed. He had a problem with the de-escalation that was not done once he gathered all the information. And going back to Katie Blackwell and Johnny Marcel that testified, the two officers that do the um, use of force training, they are to try to de-escalate the situation as much as possible to avoid even using force. So force is one of the last things that the police officers should use. And what we've seen is that just did not happen. It started with Thomas Lane, who went in here in this over-the-top Butch Cassidy-style mannerism with George Floyd with, put your fucking hands up and showing his gun. And that really got him worked up. I said this last week. So this kind of started, this this was not a situation where two calm police officers are coming because they got a call over bogus money and a man refusing to come back in and return a pack of cigarettes. How Thomas Lane approached this was that he just saw George Floyd committing the most heinous crime ever. And he really wanted this guy out of his car and into the back of the squad car and off to the station. So, you know, it just did not, there was no de-escalation. It went from getting him out of the car, sitting him down on the ground, then walking him all the way across the street, trying to force him in the car. And at this point, he really didn't know what was going on because he kept saying, what did I do? And, and Thomas Lane used the word forgery and he probably was like, what? So, you know, it just, it, it, there was no de-escalation. So the chief, again, was up there for a while, and I think that both the state and the defense got what they needed out of him. The, um, the state more so got what they wanted out of him because it's their case, and he made the ultimate decision to fire because he found what Derek Chauvin did was just totally unnecessary and not what they stand for. And he went on national television last year and said that this wasn't a lack of training issue. This was a Derek Chauvin issue and he knew what he was doing and he said it was murder. And that's that. The next person I felt, I, I just, I couldn't believe this, was Dr. Martin Tobin. Nobody knew this guy was coming. Well, we didn't, the state knew and the defense probably knew. But nobody knew the type of testimony that he was going to give. It was absolutely riveting. I've watched a lot of court cases and real ones, not the ones we see on Law and Order. 
And I have never seen a witness this. He he made the case to me. He outside of the bystanders, he really made the case. He walked us through start to finish the first four minutes and 51 seconds of the video and really took us up until his last breath and when the paramedics arrived. Just a little quick background. If you didn't watch Dr. Tobin's testimony, he is the man that pretty much wrote the book on respiratory anything. He's been doing this since 1981, 40 years, has won lots of awards, written books, has done extensive research. He gave me a review because some of the stuff he was saying I haven't heard since nursing school. He really gave me a review of the respiratory system and just how the body works from the moment you take your first breath into the moment you exhale. And his testimony was powerful and, and very damning to the defense. He showed us different still shots of when Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck and at, the, and at a point in time where his boot came off the ground. So now he's free floating right on top of George Floyd. I don't think any of us really saw that. And so he pointed it out, how much weight he felt was on George Floyd, 91.5 pounds of weight. He went into the physical, the physics of what happens when you're, how he came up with that number was basically physics. And it just was so powerful that Derek Chauvin at one time actually stopped writing. Because if you've noticed, this guy has been writing during this whole trial. He actually stopped at one point and he was just sitting there with his hands folded, just listening. Because this man told us the story. He told us how the body works. And he told us what happens when someone is slowly starting to lose oxygen. And that's what was happening to George Floyd. He started to lose oxygen to his brain. And that's why certain things started happening. His, he stopped talking. Um, his eyes were slowly closing. He went through all of that, even down to the precise minute that George Floyd pretty much what he felt died. And he discussed the fentanyl and how fentanyl wouldn't cause a sudden cardiac or a PEA, pulseless electrical activity. Somebody with fentanyl overdose would go into a coma. And he said, this is not what happened. George Floyd did not go into a coma. He was slowly suffocated in a torturous manner. He even showed where he felt George Floyd was using his, his knuckles to grind into the ground and onto the tire of the squad car to get breath. It was just, I just, I, I actually stopped what I was doing. And I just sat and I listened and I said, oh my God. And then the medical examiner even pointed that out, you know, the, the bruising on his hand. So it, uh, it, it matched the video. It just was amazing. And this was the first time that we finally could feel what George Floyd was actually going through. You know, now that we know, we know what he went through was brutal. We watched it. But for him to break it down in that, in that manner and just, you know, 
once his brain was depleted, the anoxic seizure where he kicked his leg up, where Eric Nelson was trying to say earlier in the week that that was because he was trying to kick the officers uh, off of him. And that's not what Dr. Tobin, even Dr. Lindsay Thomas today, another forensic pathologist said that that was because of an anoxic seizure. So it just really, really was powerful. It was riveting. I'll play a little of what he said, the part that I thought was very, very intriguing. Um, and opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the cause of Mr. Floyd's death. Yes, I have. Uh, would you please tell the jury what that opinion or opinions are? Yes, yes. Uh, Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen, and this caused damage to his brain that we see, and it also caused uh, a PEA arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop. And by uh, PEA, you mean pulseless electrical activity? Correct. It's a particular form of an abnormal beat of the heart, an, an arrhythmia, and a particular form of it. Have you formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to what the cause is uh, or was for the low level of oxygen in Mr. Floyd? Yes, I have. Would you tell us what that is? The cause of the low level of oxygen was shallow breathing, small breaths, small tidal volumes, shallow breaths that weren't able to carry the air through his lungs down to the essential areas of the lungs that get oxygen into the blood and get rid of the carbon dioxide. That's the alveoli at the bottom of the lung. What happened in the case of Mr. Floyd that relates to the shallow breathing that resulted in his low oxygen? So there are a number of forces that led to that his, the size of his breath became so small. And so there are a series of forces higher up that are leading to that. And the main forces that are going to lead to the shallow breath are going to be that he's turned prone on the street that he has the handcuffs in place combined with the street, and then that he has a knee on his neck, and then that he has a knee on his back and on his side. All of these four forces are ultimately going to result in the low tidal volume, which gives you the shallow breaths. That okay, so you guys kind of, I don't know if you guys watched it, but he was up there a while and he really went play by play of everything that went on. And his, as you heard, he died from uh, hypoxia. And he said there was no way the fentanyl caused it. And he just wasn't convinced. And this was the first time I actually saw Eric Nelson completely bomb on cross-examination, it, it just it just didn't work. There was no way that he could cross-examine an expert. He could try to poke holes in little things and of course jab that he really wasn't the one that actually saw the body. All of his uh, opinions was from information he was given, but he came very prepared, this, this man. He came with charts and diagrams and, you know, just, it, it you could tell he took a lot of time on this case and he did it on his own accord. He was not paid for this. He wanted to just do it. 
He admitted that he's never done something in, in this type of case for this type of case. So he was very credible. And again, Eric Nelson just really floundered on the cross-examination. And back to that prone position that Dr. Tobin mentioned, the, the use of force trainers also mentioned that a lot of, there was a lot of talk this week about that prone position, because when you're in the prone position, when you're laying, especially when you're on concrete, like Dr. Tobin had brought up, you know, it's hard, it's a very hard surface and, and your body is in a position where it can't get adequate gas exchange. And Dr. Tobin even mentioned at one point, the left side of his body was almost like the lung was removed because there was really no air getting into it. That's why George Floyd was just really trying to force his, his, his shoulder up. You see that in the video. And Dr. Tobin said that's because he was just desperate and it became so desperate that towards the end he was, you know, using his knuckles and just anything to try to get air in. And one other thing that he pointed out that I thought was interesting was about the handcuffs and the fact that they were tight and the officers, you could see them pulling on the handcuffs and jabbing him and pushing his arms up. It just was very, very damning for, for the defense. And it, it just, it was obvious on cross that there was really nothing Eric Nelson could do or say to try to pick apart um, Dr. Tobin's testimony. So that was probably the best witness that they've presented thus far. To me, if people had doubts up until then, I think Dr. Tobin really um, cleared them out uh, with his testimony. And the next person that came today was Dr. Lindsay Thomas. She is a forensic pathologist who trained Dr. Andrew Baker, the one that actually did the autopsy. And she was talking about what she felt and she pretty much said what Dr. Tobin did, that this was a hypoxic event. And she went into different reasons of why she even discussed contributing factors and what that means that, okay, he may have had heart disease or he may have had drugs in his system, but what ultimately caused his death was this hypo hypoxic event that was brought on by Derek Chauvin and these other two police officers that were using their body weight to where George Floyd just could not get oxygen and, and, and get himself into a reasonable position to get that oxygen. I thought she was interesting because again, she trained Dr. Andrew Baker and Dr. Baker did reach out to her during his autopsy and wanted clarification, which is something doctors do, especially when it's hard to determine, you know, what actually, actually happened here. So Dr. Baker came today, finally. You guys that <laughs> follow me on, on Twitter in particular know I was really waiting for this to happen because there was a couple of things I was concerned about that were brought up by the defense. But Dr. Baker got on there and went through his credentials and all that and discussed things that he found on autopsy, went through all the bruising that was found on George Floyd's body. In particular, his shoulders had contusions on them. And a contusion, if you guys don't know, is trauma to the body, which causes bleeding underneath the tissue. And that's what was seen on the shoulder area of George Floyd. And that was, you know, the area of focus where Derek Chauvin was at. 
bruising on the knuckles on the face where you could see George Floyd parsing his face on the concrete. And there was an incident apparently inside the car where he may or may not have hit his face on the plexiglass. So he went through that and he finally got to the cause of death, which was homicide. And he said, homicide is someone else causing your death. So he, all this stuff that he found and he went through it, the heart disease, the extensive stenosis that George Floyd had, the narrowing of the arteries, the hypertensive issues he had, he went into that deeply. And he talked about the drugs that were found in his system. He discussed that. But his ultimate conclusion was this cardiopulmonary arrest brought on by law enforcement subdual and restraint. And this is why George Floyd died. Now the defense got up there and I knew this was going to be brought up. I was actually very worried about it and, and it was brought up. Dr. Baker gave some statements early on after the autopsy was complete. And he also gave some statements a little after that in June. And he made a comment that I was a little nervous about. And he said, if the circumstances were different and George Floyd were found locked in his home, and with the amount of fentanyl that he had in his system, he would have listed the death as an overdose. And the defense brought that up. It made me a little nervous because we heard from the forensic toxicologists and the other people that did the testing of these pills and that were found in the police car and the, the things that were found in George Floyd's bloodstream. They said that the levels were low, below DUI level, but they each did point out that there's no safe amount of methamphetamine or fentanyl in the body. Well, more so methamphetamine. Um, so this was brought up and Dr. Baker really held his own. The thing about him is he's used to being cross-examined. So he knew what was coming and his body language changed. I watched. He got a little nervous when Nelson started really asking him these questions about his interview. And he knew they were going to come up. And I kind of suspected that if times were different, he probably wouldn't have said certain things because, again, he got nervous. But he didn't waver and he explained himself. Again, he's used to cross-examination, so he knows the type of questions that are going to be asked and he knows how to respond. But I used the word slick when I described him. I felt he was slick only because I just did not like the wording he used in those interviews. And I think that he realizes now that hmm, maybe I shouldn't have said X, Y, and Z, but he said it, it's out there, it was put on the record. Eric Nelson brought it up, really wanted to focus in on that fentanyl. But like I said, Dr. Tobin really debunked that. In particular, he said these high levels of CO2 that were in his body wouldn't have been what you would see in a fentanyl overdose. So that just completely eradicated his testimony. And I really hope that the jury really focused on that part. So um those were the people that I thought stood out to me. And one person that I was not too thrilled with was the crime scene investigator, Mackenzie Anderson. 
I was not satisfied with her testimony because I didn't think she did a thorough job. They confiscated the cars, processed them, and did all that. But then the cars were re-examined in December of 2020 after the attorney general contacted her office that they wanted to take more pictures of X, Y, and Z. And I just couldn't understand why these things weren't processed in the beginning. And her answers just did not satisfy me. So I really didn't think she was credible in some parts. So unfortunately, I didn't trust the crime scene. So I'm not sure if there's a juror on there that had a problem with this. I was listening to some seasoned attorneys talking about this. They they also kind of had an issue with the crime scene, and especially since pills were found, these little teeny pills were found January 27, 2021. We're talking two months before the trial started, and now all of a sudden, you know, you guys are processing these pills. So I, I had a big problem with that. I mean, were they really there when she first took the pictures or, or you know, were they, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't like to th- suggest that evidence was planted. I'm not suggesting she did that at all, but her, her overall testimony, I just did not, I had a problem with it. So some of her testimony, I completely dismissed because it seemed a little shady. It, it really did. And when they were talking about the defense team was there during the investigation of the these pills that were taken out. And I just, it, it made me again uneasy. So I said, I don't know about this witness. So that is that. So that is really all I have this week. Next week, the defense starts their case. I believe they start on Tuesday. And I heard that the state will close with George Floyd's family, I believe his brother is going to testify and really, really humanize his brother. I think that he has been humanized to a degree so far, but, you know, it'll be really nice to hear his brother come up there and speak on his behalf. And two of Derek Chauvin's complaints will be brought to light next week by the prosecution. So I'm eager to hear that. And just briefly, since I've gotten so many messages, yes, I still feel Derek Chauvin is going to take the stand in his own defense. I haven't gotten any spidey senses that he is not. And I guess that'll remain to be seen if he will. But I I think he will. And I think he has to. We all know that he's probably not going to do good with cross-examination but I still feel like he's going to take the stand. And I think at this point, especially after Dr. Tobin, and then of course the medical examiner with his final determination that this was a homicide, uh, the defense doesn't have much wiggle room. So they're gonna have to do something drastic. And I think Derek Chauvin is going to take the stand. Uh, So I guess I will talk to you guys next week. And send me an email. I read them, the Toxic Mom Podcast at gmail.com. Chat soon. Bye.